Hey there, faithful ThoughtBot podcast listener. We love podcasts and having the opportunity to share our experiences through such a personal medium, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we like creating them. For the month of December only, you can show your support for ThoughtBot and our podcast with mugs, shirts, and a limited edition knit hat. This particular shirt and mug design have never before been available outside of our own teammates and customers, and they may never be again. For the production and shipping, we are proud to partner with Social Imprints, who provides career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. I released a new version of Diesel. Wait, no, we, that's too much of the show. We need to say something funny beforehand or something. Wait, Tom's see. still waiting for the show to actually start. Oh, uh, I thought the thing before I talked about the other thing could, could, could be the start of the show. Tom was like, no. I don't know, that wasn't, that wasn't going to stay in. <laughs> no, we'll put, that, we'll put that at the end. <laughs> Nobody listens that long anyway. Exactly. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. What's going on? I shipped a new version of Diesel. Yeah, I saw that. 0.9. Yep. Congratulations. Didn't get the biggest feature that I wanted to finish in time, which was Postgres upsert support. Right. We talked about that last time. But um, I couldn't push back the release because I, wa- I wanted to. Re- I had a bunch of minor features and bug fixes just sitting in master that I wanted to get out. And I'm going to New Zealand for the rest of the year tomorrow. So, like, I wanted to get a release out with a few-day buffer before that in case there were any problems. Right. That makes sense. But, yeah, I enjoy working on that project mostly because I really enjoy the responses I get when I work on that project. Yeah, I saw you saying something that you really thought that that community was, like, its secret weapon. All right. So we shipped the change to make big integer primary keys the default. Because it's a thing that there's just not really major downsides anymore. At least not like there used to be. The only actual measurable downside is it takes up more space on disk. Which is a thing that just doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, it's not taking up more space in memory because your database is presumably hosted on a on a machine with a 64-bit CPU. So the minimum size that anything should be stored in. Assuming you're compi- the, it's compiled with a C compiler that likes to do alignment in a way that makes the CPU happy. It'll add four bits of padding most of the time. And it's one of those things that just when you run out of primary key space, it tends to catch you by surprise. Right. There's no warning that you're running out of primary key space. It's just right. like all of a sudden you can't create new records. Well, it's not, it's not even that it's like you didn't get a warning. It's that most of the time when it happens, it's not because like you slowly crept up there. It's because like you ended up on the front page of Hacker News or something. And for a lot of time, like, <laughs> sure. I mean, obviously, that's not enough to, to, to get 2.4 million records instantaneously. But it's, <laughs> it's usually some event where you get a humongous uptick in traffic. And it's also even if you saw it coming, it's not like the simplest right, thing to prepare for to be like, oh, I'm going to take my tables offline to change the type of the primary key column right it's a pain it's a pain to migrate after the fact so the biggest concern during this whole process and this part of what frustrates me about this is that this pull request was open for months right and i tweeted about it a few times while it was in the process like plenty of opportunities for for anybody anybody who wants to to chime in anyway so, so one of the concerns that came up 
that's a legitimate concern is that so for changing the default type of the primary key, we also have to change the default type of foreign keys. Yes. And for some backends, if you have a big integer foreign key pointing at a regular integer primary key, that blows up. And by some backends, I mean MySQL. Okay. Postgres surprisingly actually just handles it fine. And if you look at the query planner, also does the conversion ahead of time so that it doesn't mess with indexes, um, which is nice. Biggest concern was just that it can be a little confusing if you have a table that was that you created because old migrations don't cha- have their meaning change. Right. You still have tables that were created with old migrations, so they'll have 32-bit primary keys. You might then, in Rails 5.1, create a new table that's pointing at one of those old tables, so you have a mismatch between the, the, the type of the primary key and the foreign key. Mm-hmm. And the solution there is basically like catch the database error message and give a very specific error to the user that says, this is why this is happening, this is the, the exact code you need to fix it. Is this not a case for the breaking change migration, like you would inherit from 5.1 instead of 5.0, like that kind of thing? Right. So that's that's what I mean. Like your migrations won't change in meaning. So if you had a right. migration that had the default primary key, that migration that was generated with Rails 5 still generates a 32-bit integer okay. primary key. Right. The issue is when you create that table in Rails 5. It's going to inherit from 5.1 or whatever, right? The no, mi- no, it migration. still inherits from 5, right? But okay. then you create a new foreign key that points at it in 5.1. So the migrations, you didn't have a migration that changed meaning. Right, but your new migration, when you run Rails generate migration, it's now going to inherit inherit from active record 5.1. Right. Yeah. And it'll have all, you know, whatever defaults we have in 5.1. This will be, as far as I'm aware, the only change to the migration DSL in in 5.1. Okay. I'm with you. So what's the problem? (laughs) Nothing. Just like... Then people complained. Why did People complained. Why are they complaining? and, And like... Oh well, if I'm just having a tiny little blog that's never gonna that's never gonna run out of primary key space, you're wasting, you know, <laughs> however many megabytes or however many gigabytes of space. And it's it's not even that people were complaining. It's that when I see these complaints, people are like, "This is evidence the Rails team has just lost it." <laughs> it's right. just like I don't know. I feel like every time I do anything in Rails, people get upset. And it's never just that they're upset. It's that they're always saying shit like the Rails team has lost it. They always then also turn it into something's wrong with us. Yeah, I think that's the sign of like a, uh, I mean, (laughs) it's an immature aspect of a mature community. Sure. I mean, it's it's definitely something that just gets worse as the community gets older and larger. Like, I'm not trying to imply that oh, this is just the way it's always been, and and that the fact that Rust is newer and smaller has nothing to do with it. Right. And I, re- I remember a time in the Ruby community where it was just generally pleasant because we didn't have that. Right. What I see in the Rust community is just people seem to go beyond what I would expect from a generally pleasant community. People go out of their way to be polite and friendly when reporting bugs. People randomly drop into IRC or Gitter or whatever to thank people for working on features or libraries or things. I think part of it is that Rust has had a code of conduct since 10 years ago and has been consistent in enforcing it. Hmm. Okay. And it sort of led to like, hey, this is a space where you're just not going to randomly attack people for code things. (laughs) And if you have a problem with that, that's fine. Just you're not going to be in the Rust subreddit or the Rust IRC rooms. Interesting. Okay. I think those are the only places that apply. Oh, or the Rust GitHub pages. It's not even so much the fact that the code of conduct is that, like, or rather, I don't think it's so much the enforcement of the code of conduct, but more that the fact that it's there kind of encourages a type of community growth that is friendlier. Maybe. (laughs) 
I feel like you have some opinions on this. I have complex feelings. I think codes of conduct are great. I've never read one other than like when they become like a story and I read them. I mean, I agree with the people who say that like we shouldn't need a written out thing to tell people not to be jerks. I also Except, agree with the people who say we need a written out thing to tell people not to be jerks. Yeah, like I like, agree in theory that yes, we should. I'd rather this. we shouldn't need right. it. Right. But the right. behavior of people on the internet <laughs> kind of says that we do. Right. But I also just don't know what I, I don't. I mean, maybe Rust is a great example of a place where that has actually. I don't. Maybe I don't read codes of conduct because I don't act like an asshole generally. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, the people who are assholes don't read them either. Right. So, but I guess the idea is then you have something to fall back on and and also signals to people who do care about these things that like, hey, we're thinking about you. Yeah. And we're trying to do something. You have to you have to back that up, obviously. You can't just have this sure. like policy and have it hang out, but Well, and that's and that's one of the the frustrating things about when people are trying to push codes of conduct in all communities because you do have to then devote the resources to enforcing it and presumably if something major is happening, like you remember how bad the the threads got in the Ruby language code of conduct issue? Yes. <laughs> and one of the things that came up during that time was that there was somebody impersonating Coraline at a time that was 1 a.m. in Japan. And people realized, oh, right, like there's no moderators who aren't in Japan on, on Redmine. Right. <laughs> but it's, I, I, I mean, OK, Ruby's large enough. That's now at the scale that having somebody who has moderator privileges and is trusted around 24-7 is not super unreasonable. Right. But like for small projects, you definitely can't expect them to have somebody always available all the time. Right. It's not like at a conference where there should just be somebody I can reach out to uh, or somebody right. can reach out to and report a problem with open source stuff. You for most projects, which is, you know, the long tail of projects, you're not going to have an enforcement team. It's just going right. to be using your own judgment and your own judgments only available from <laughs> these hours. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's reasonable to expect a response to that stuff in the same amount of time you would expect a response for a security issue. Um, yeah, probably. Which is like 48 hours to yeah. like a week. Depending on the project, I may also think it like depending on the offense and the project, it may also be reasonable to say <laughs> I'm on vacation. I'll deal with this right. when I get home, right? <laughs> like, right. everybody cool off. <laughs> I'm going to lock this issue and carry on. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny that a lot of people who are against codes of conduct dislike it because they're afraid of the code of conduct being abused and it being used as, like, backing for banning people who wouldn't otherwise get banned. Right. That argument doesn't really mesh with me because the people who added the code of conduct are the people who were making those judgments beforehand. All this is is saying, this is roughly how we're going to make those judgments. Right. In general, the idea of a slippery slope is an argument I'm less and less inclined to tolerate. (laughs) Not necessarily tolerate, but I'm less and less inclined to entertain. The slippery slope argument is not something that really gets very far with me. If you can't prove that we are on a slippery slope already by being like, look, before this was was fine, now all of a sudden it's not, and the, you know, I don't know. I've, I just haven't seen it. I do think, though, to, to your point earlier about like maybe Rust is one of those places where it's worked out well. Mm-hmm. I think you don't ever hear about those because it's non-controversial when it when it when it's fine. <laughs> right. I also don't remember. Like, I think most of these are fine. Like, even when yep. they like, I haven't heard anything about Ruby's code of conduct other than like, hey, maybe we should take another stab at this because what we have is kind of weak. But like, I haven't heard any controversies outside of that once it was adopted. 
outside of meta controversies about the code of conduct itself, I have not heard of any controversies about the code of, of code of conduct either being applied or not applied appropriately. Maybe that's actually the case and I'm just not in tune with them. It's entirely possible. I don't follow these things closely, but it's not something that's bubbled up onto my radar, which is fairly large. Right. We have one on Rails. We lucked out to avoid like Hacker News' radar at the time. Um, <laughs> it was just Coraline opened the PR. We got David to come give the official yes, we are in favor of doing this comment. Mm-hmm. We locked the uh, issue. <laughs> and there, I think there's been one incident where the code of conduct came into play, which that person would have been banned anyway. So we do have a code of conduct on ThoughtBot open source projects. That was an effort by several people here a while ago. And I've never had to consider it for yeah. anything. And I hope that that continues and ideally to be the case. you don't have to, right? right? I think it's just a. Me- I think it's mostly just a message saying, "Hey, yeah, we intend to make sure that people aren't harassing other people yep. here." Yep. And hopefully, we never have to worry about that. Yeah, like I wish I didn't have to say that, but evidence <laughs> right. evidence shows that um, we do. So, <laughs> there we said it. Uh, I have some follow up from previous shows if we want to change tact a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. So the first thing is a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that. I had to use JavaScript, the JavaScript check validity APIs to disable a form button when the form, when required inputs weren't present. Oh, yes. I saw this tweet. And Chris Barnes tweeted at us and said, no, you don't. (laughs) And he sent us a code pen, which we can link to in the show notes, which was basically using pointer events is like a CSS declaration you can make. You can say pointer events none. So I opened up a pull request on the project where I did that. I opened that pull request today. And the only downside I can see, a couple downsides I can see. One is that with the disabled button, we were able to say like, oh, if the button is disabled, then use the cursor, whatever. I forget what it is. Basically the the circle with the line through it. Like, nope, can't do anything here. Right. So you get a little cursor feedback. On the same thing, you cannot combine pointer events none with cursor events, with, with a cursor declaration. Huh. For whatever reason, I tested this both in Safari and Chrome. I did not test it in Firefox and some. I wonder if this is a spec bug or an implementation bug. I mean, if you think about it this way, it's not receiving pointer events. So how would it know if it's supposed to change the cursor, right? Because pointer events include things like hover. Right, but I don't think of styling as the result of of JavaScript well, pointer it's not, events. It's not JavaScript pointer events. This is this is SAS pointer events, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Oh, anyway, and the other small downside was that whereas my previous reliance on calling the function check validity through JavaScript was good back to IE 10, this is only good for IE 11, which I don't think is a problem because I think anybody on IE 10 gets auto-upgraded to IE 11. Like, I think you're on an OS that's doing that. So I don't know if, how big of a problem that really is. But I uh, just thought I'd mention those. But I think that that solution is better than the JavaScript that I had written because the JavaScript I had written only handled like required. And if I was going to do other HTML5 validations, I would have to add those as well. So this just through the invalid, I guess, is that called a pseudo selector where you do the colon? Yeah, pseudo selector. So the invalid pseudo selector picks up all of those things that the JavaScript API would as well, except I don't have to implement them in JavaScript. So I think there's one downside. When I was reading that tweet, there was something that came to mind that I think is a big downside of this with both your version and his version. Okay. How do I find out why the form is invalid? Yeah, so that both of those things were discussed in the pull request where I originally submitted the thing, and it was like, well, let's just go with it for now. But you can also use other styling, right? So that form colon invalid thing 
that works right. on any but other like, input. So I can say, like, highlight those in red. The problem there being oh, there's, yeah. there's no, like, after they've already blurred this field, then make it red. It's just like when right. it loads up, it's red. So then you would need some JavaScript to say, like, is it invalid and have they blurred the field? Like, so maybe every time you blur a field, you add has been blurred or something like that. Right. <laughs> and then has been blurred plus the invalid pseudo selector means style me red or something like that. I kind of like the default of just you click on you click on the submit button and the browser gives you the error message that says exactly why the form is invalid. I also really like the default of that, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't work in mobile Safari Fair. <laughs> or in regular Safari. And I just, oh God, it's just one of the last remaining like browser differences that like gets me on every project. Hey, Alexi, if you're listening, can you please fix it? <laughs> Who's Alexi? He's a guy who who works for Apple who okay. listens to the podcast. All right, yeah, thanks. I would be your best friend. He doesn't work on Safari, but maybe he, I'm sure he knows somebody who does. I don't know. Even know what they would do on mobile Safari. Like, how would you make that experience work? The same way it works on mobile Chrome, which is exactly how it works on the desktop. So, what happens if uh, if there's an error? I mean, this could happen on a desktop too, but it's far more likely on mobile. You have a field. The field that has errors is off screen. It scrolls to the field that has the error. Okay. Yep. Cool. Done. <laughs> Cosine. Let's do it. So that was the first bit of follow-up I had. So I was excited about that. I submitted a PR to have people on the project bandy about that and see what happens. Cool. Were there any other things worth following up? This isn't necessarily follow-up, but like we had Ian Anderson on the show to talk about the React Native development that we were doing for the app called Purple Train, which is an MBTA commuter rail thing. I love that name. <laughs> it is a good name. We just had our end of the year investment time at ThoughtBot, which is like a, where we do our holiday party, but we take Thursday and Friday off of client work. Usually we just have Friday, and then it gives us like two days to like really try and do something more ambitious. And so we invested some additional time into that application, and we did add some features. Like I added some stuff to the Elixir backend to put some new features in the application. But the most interesting thing we did, which was... Um, ship what we believe to be the first production mobile app written in elm right so it's shipped in it's elm native which is like a project that is like if you go to its homepage on github it says like this is experimental don't do this and like which i didn't know that was a thing until you mentioned it yeah and did you did you tell me about this on the podcast or was this in chat maybe just in chat i'm not sure okay but josh steiner who i work with here and Joe Ferris had been like kind of poking around at it for the last couple of weeks before the investment time stuff and found things like, we can't make a web request. Let's submit a patch. <laughs> so like they had to submit a number of, uh, I think like two, three, four pull requests to Elm Native to get things to work. Is this just like a wrapper on React Native? Yes. But for Elm? Yeah, you're still... Okay. Yes, you're still... You're writing the application in Elm. You still get the Elm compiler. It's still running react native and javascript under the hood like it would normally right i mean it compiles to javascript normally but you're compiling sure. to react native native flavored javascript or whatever so i don't know i thought that was pretty cool that like we have a reasonable expectation that we're the first people to do this to put an app in the store written yeah. in elm i think that's cool maybe you can get put in the elm native readme <laughs> yeah be like uh, it's not for production unless you're these crazy people who <laughs> it's not for production like, but these people have put it in production who are right like literally one of the changes they had to make was enabling the thing to run in production mode because <laughs> it wasn't able to do that um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was cool i only kind of looked over some elm stuff i stayed mostly in elixir land but yeah it's just like a fun time of year at thoughtbot a lot of uh interesting projects and interestingly like 
every year when we do this end of the year investment time, somebody's always like, I have this great idea for a mobile app. And they start working on it and realize like, holy shit, mobile apps take a lot more than two days to build. Yep. Except this year, we actually had, Purple Train doesn't really count, that had been in development for a while, but we had two other mobile apps that were built entirely and shipped entirely in two days. That's surprising. Because they're using React Native. <laughs> and they're also like they're they are also simple in scope, right? They're not right. huge applications, but and so like I was really impressed with that. And somebody had mentioned like, well, I mean, these are really simple apps. And I was like, there's no reason that a lot of MVPs that we build can't be simple to this degree. Like maybe not two days simple, maybe more like two weeks simple. Right. I think that's how long Cigar Finder took me. Two weeks. Although I was also not super experienced with mobile back then. Right. And so I think that things like React Native, like to be able to ship something cross-platform like that, it's pretty compelling. And I know that a lot of native mobile developers feel like that's an anti-pattern <laughs> because you're shipping one experience across right. two platforms. Across and across multiple OSs, right. which are meant to have differing experiences. And you can differ them if you start, like Ian talked about this on the show, where you can like say, oh, this view is our iOS view and this view is our Android view. But once you start doing that, you lose some of the like... Right. At that point, why not just write the native app? Well, because then you're then you've got to deal with Kotlin and Swift or Java and Swift or Java because and Objective C. Because JavaScript is such is so much of a better language. <laughs> well, but here's the thing: if I were used to writing Swift, and they came and somebody said like, "We've got this great new proposition for you. You can write applications in JavaScript," I'd be like, "Get the f- out of here," <laughs> because like you're giving up all your beautiful type safety, and you're dropping down to JavaScript. But if you can do it in Elm and have it, and also have it be, I feel like there's a large group of people who would be even more get the out of here in response <laughs> to that. But yeah, like yeah, if that's a, a thing that if you would have otherwise written your JavaScript in Elm, <laughs> but like we also still don't have a critical mass of people who are writing their jo- their just regular JavaScript in Elm. Yes, I believe that is true. Uh, this is the first thing that I've seen somebody build in Elm that made me go like, hmm. Interesting. I should sit down and do that. And I've had like, I've had this idea for a toy project I want to do in Elm. I haven't had a chance to actually start it, even though I meant to over the last couple of weeks. But it was just a, to- it's like a, an idea, a toy idea, basically. And I was like, oh, this is like a real thing that we're building in Elm, or other people are building in Elm, and I'm watching be built and building the Elixir API. So yeah, it was, I mean, it's cool. Yeah, it was. It's definitely cool. And I, I think, would definitely be down to write a mobile app in Elm. Cool. <laughs> So that was pretty cool, and it was the year. It was definitely, at least in our Boston office, I'm still getting reports on what people worked on in other offices, but in our Boston office, it was definitely the year of React Native projects and actually coming up with something pretty impressive out of each one of those. We were all, I think it was a year and a half, maybe it was two years ago, that we switched to React Native, and then this year we we switched back to writing just regular native apps. At Shopify, you mean? Yeah. Hmm. Why is that? Just to take better native advantage of each platform? No, I don't remember the specific details. I do know that it wasn't like we prefer native. It was that there were specific gripes with React Native that were like irreconcilable with its fundamental design. But I don't remember what specifically those were. All right. But I remember I remember like we rewrote everything in React Native and it was a huge investment that like was all of our mobile team for almost a full year and then we didn't do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean well i mean that gets into our rewrite idea of whether or not a rewrite is ever a good idea which we've done a mobile app is always going to be i think smaller in scope than a web app is maybe i mean there are entire businesses built on mobile apps that don't have web apps 
Right, but what what I mean is like usually when we're talking about rewriting a, a, a server, right? We're talking about I guess I'm just talking in terms of code base. Like web apps can tend to scale a lot larger than mobile apps can. A lot of times you see mobile apps get split into multiple applications when they would get to the kind of scale that we often talk about when we're talking about big scary rewrites. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. I haven't worked on a lot of mobile apps. I'm just even talking about this from like a consumer side in terms of like the the scope of features user facing. Yeah. I guess that's fair. Mobile apps tend to be a little simpler. I mean, that that sort of makes sense, too. You have fewer buttons in front of you. Right. I guess that does make sense when you think about it that way. I also, like, you mentioned, like, you know, Shopify has gone back now and invested in building customized experiences for each platform in the, you know, languages that they should be built in for those platforms, etc. And I think that that's a different proposition than startup has idea for app, right? Right. Startup has idea for app like you need to get to something shippable quickly. <laughs> yes, I do think people tend to overestimate the time savings because when we're, we're talking about an MVP, we're also just talking about something that isn't that hard to build in the native frameworks and porting code to another language is usually like it's not that hard. Yeah, I mean I guess that's possibly true. I I have not like I said the the first mobile application I had any direct involvement with is this one. <laughs> Sure. Uh, and we didn't try to write it in Objective-C first. And in actuality, it wasn't even going to be cross-platform first because the only people who cared about it originally were people who were using iOS. And it was like, yeah, we we're web developers using iOS. So it was like, uh, React Native, and we'll just target iOS. And then somebody who was interested had an Android phone. <laughs> and we were like, let's see how hard. Oh, wait, that wasn't very hard at all. Like, right. <laughs> now we have no, an Android And, and that's cool. <laughs> and I agree. Like, It definitely has a compelling use case there. But I also just... I mean, I think for a startup, the biggest cost isn't even so much the time it takes to develop for both platforms. It's the fact that you have to have an employee who's capable of developing for both. Sure. Or rather, more likely, you have to have two employees as opposed to the one. Right. We've just generally also been seeing an uptick in people who come to us with the notion of writing something cross-platform already without us having to say, like, we could also do this in React Native and have it be like they're ac- people are actually coming contacting us saying, like, we want a React Native mobile web application. So, yeah, might have more of that in my future. I'm not jazzed about writing those in JavaScript, but if I could write them in Elm, maybe I would be. I don't know. I saw some Elm over somebody's shoulder and it looked okay. (laughs) Would you want to leave the client with an Elm code base? Why do people... So we have this argument all the time. Like, why would you want to leave the client with an X code base? What would be the problems in leaving a client with an Elm code base? It would be significantly harder for them to find other people to take over that code base. That is often the argument, except imagine if you are a developer who really likes Elm. Right. You are probably not working at a place that lets you write Elm. No, definitely. And, that, and that's the counter-argument I used to give when I was, when I was, when I was pushing Scala for mobile. Um, <laughs> I feel like mo- languages for mobile beyond the mainstream languages, though, is much, much, much more niche than just we're using Elm for our front end. I could also see that there are a whole host of concerns when you start dealing with mobile performance, like on-device concerns, that it's beyond just knowing the language of Elm that you need to be aware of. For me, it was always tooling. And that too, you, se- right. you, you separate yourself, because right, the tooling for mobile is super, super specific to that platform and their languages of choice. And, you know, Kotlin's only gaining traction because there's an actual major company putting a lot of resources into making sure that is a good experience on Android. 
Right. And the same company who creates Android Studio, right? So like... Right. Uh, well, who creates the code base that Android Studio is based on. Right. Right. So, but like in general, right, as soon as you separate yourself from the native tooling for that platform, you're at the whims of the, the tooling of whoever's working on that, which for most certainly was the case for Scala. I have no clue what it's like for Elm Native, having never actually heard of it until you mentioned that it existed. <laughs> uh, right. But it's like, it's two guys, if that. And they're open source project. Right. And hopefully and hopefully it works. Yeah. But like, I mean, certainly now. That gets out of date really fast. Would I right now say we ship this Elm Native thing? No. No, I wouldn't. Would I say a, a React Native code base? Sure. And React Native isn't really that old. No, but it's much more mainstream. And, and, and same by thing. Facebook. It has, it's, right. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I, I guess it really is just mobile has so much more to it to support that. Like, cause I, I always hate that argument of like, Oh, angular was better because it was backed by Google. But I feel like for mobile, it actually does need that. I guess because with mobile, you can't just write code and expect it to continue to work a, a year from now or build a year from now. Right. And I will say like the trickiest parts of the project came when we had to interface with Xcode and iTunes connect and when we had to interface with Android Studio to like check off the right permissions and yada yada yada, like all this stuff, particularly iTunes Connect, like what? Uh, <laughs> like I hear our mobile developers all the time complaining about like code signing and iTunes Connect and yada yada yada. And I was like, okay, I guess this is really bad. And then like I actually got to look into what it is they go through for like just a brief minute. And I was like, I cannot believe that people put up with this. <laughs> yeah. And you I also have to go through all of it and just to run it on your local device. <laughs> right. And just like, we were trying to add me as an internal tester and it was like, why can't I add my, I'm in this list here, but I'm not in this list here. And it's like, Oh, these aren't both lists of people, the same people. They're lists of different people in different locations. What does that mean? And like, Oh, it was just like, <laughs> and you know, the Android one seemed a little easier, but also no picnic. No, it's not, but it's definitely, at least you don't have to sign code to run it locally. Right, right. So I can see definitely something that integrates tightly with the tooling being uh, important. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess the jury's out. We'll see, I guess. <laughs> but I do think React Native is going to have a long life. Sure. And presumably Elm Native is literally just take the Elm tool chain and pipe that into the React Native tool chain. And that to me sounds like something that's much less likely to break immediately than... Um, if you were piping that into the iTunes Connect tool chain. <laughs> the iTunes Connect. Yeah, I mean, I guess who knows? Because there are all sorts of complications about like, well, what version of React was with this target? And how do you manage that? And how does that work on devices? And I don't know. What if we had a versioning scheme where you could state programmatically Semant how much semantically stability maybe? in some <laughs> semantic form what level of stability you're expecting from these APIs and have everything automatically figure out exactly what versions it can upgrade to. That sounds good, yeah. Nah, it probably would never work. Didn't React go through like some sort of, like the current version of React Native is 0.39. I think the React project went through some weird transition where it went from like, you know, your regular tiny releases and then it went to version 15.0. Well, once you, uh, until you're 1.0, Semver basically doesn't apply. Right, but they went for, but like they didn't go to 1.0. They went from 0.14 to 15.0. <laughs> Wait, so major like they're they are major version greater than zero now? Or yeah, is it 0.15. No, just 15.0. <laughs> 
It's kind of like what happened to Rake, where Rake went from like 0.9 to 10. Well, and then there was a <laughs> node went from 0. 0.0.15 to version 5. Because IOJS was ver- were versions 1, 2, 3, and 4 or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, version numbers. Fun. Yeah. So the version number of Android is completely meaningless and is entirely for marketing purposes. And there is an internal API version number. It's not Semver because it's literally just a number which increments. But it like there will be releases of Android that do not increment this number because there are no breaking API changes. And then there are versions that do increment that number because they are, there are breaking API changes. Mm-hmm. The big counter argument to Semver I mean, we've done we've done this episode already, but the big counter argument to Semver is like, but marketing, right? And Android is uh, even though they don't do Semver, they do have both the code names, which they do successfully, and also they have the version number, which is meaningless to developers, which is also for marketing purposes, and all of which is completely separated from the semantic, like how compatible is this API? Which I think they're just a good example of like, turns out you can just. Right, you can change your project name to X2 if you want to have the marketing 2.0. Right. You can have your semantically versioned cake and eat it too. Or yes. your, mar- your marketingly versioned cake and exactly. eat your semantically versioned cake too. Or, something. or we can just <laughs> stop trying to make software so exciting. <laughs> right. Have releases. Yeah, I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for Diesel XP and Diesel Vista. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Oh, I need. To, I'm gonna. I'm gonna start coming up with fun code names for releases when we do 1.0. I think I'm gonna do 1.0 in February. It seems to be the the popular thing to do is to use some form of alliteration. Yeah. Uh, like Ubuntu releases and Puma releases. Although Ubuntu, right? Because Android uses them to indicate like when something is a big change to the users. Because not every release, you know, like six and six point one had the same code name, and Ubuntu is is just like. Their version number is the date it was released on, and it's every six months. Right, but it's called like Hardy Heron. That's like that's literally right. that's literally the last one I remember, and I'm sure they're on to like. <laughs> I think they're on like <laughs> N or something now. Now I have to Google it. Ubuntu versions. But they are a good example, right? Like version names or even just letters are easier to be, for people to remember than numbers. They're on X. Xenial Xerus. <laughs> oh gosh, what are they going to do in uh, 18 months? They're probably just going to have to go to like three word alliterations or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember what I was going to say. It's probably something about Diesel 1.0. But yes, I don't Diesel 1.0 in February. That's the plan. Awesome. It's funny. When you actually kind of strictly try to follow Semver, 1.0 is actually a fairly meaningless thing. Because the the, the things I'm tackling for 1.0... Actually, some of them are the big features I just want to get done before, like, quote-unquote, public release. But for the most part, it's not like these are the features we need for Diesel to be, quote-unquote, complete. It's these are the features that I expect will cause breaking API changes as a result of implementing them. Right. Because you don't want to just do it and then go immediately to 2.0 a week later. Right. 1.0 is, right, is me saying this is an API that I'm committed to some amount of stability. That makes sense to me. Because to me, Semver does also mean that you... Yes, you can just bump your major version, but to me, when you are post 1.0, I expect that like you're not going to because I want to be able to write software that, that works in a few years and not have to go through hassles to do that. Right. Yeah. Did you see the dust up about Homebrew and semantic versioning? No. What happened there? So at some point before 1.0 even, Homebrew 1.0, SHA-1 or something like that was deprecated. So like if you have your own Homebrew formula and use that method... 
you got a deprecation warning. Okay. In 1.1, I think it was. So that shipped with a deprecation warning in 1.0. In 1.1, they just removed the method. Oh, that's bad. And so there was like, there's actually a PR where the person, there's somebody complaining about it and they get like, you know, we've gone over this before. They get a little entitled and then the maintainer, right. get, maintainer gets defensive. Semper doesn't even really apply to homebrew because it's, it's not a dependency. But it is if you say have your own keg. Keg, or, but you can't, you can't target a version of homebrew, right? It's user facing. Right. The version is purely user facing. That was kind of my argument as well is like semantic versioning is for libraries. This isn't really a library. Right. This is more of a like, well, this is actually Ruby distribution problems as well because you can't, you can't specify the version of Ruby you were built against in a thing that you are shipping like to non-Ruby users unless you're bundling the Ruby executable in, in, a, in a single binary. Right, which is what like traveling Ruby used to do, but is now deprecated. Right, but I mean, you could you could in your homebrew formula raise unless homebrew version is this version. Like we don't support this version. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I mean, but it was not. It sounds like a very unnecessary breaking change on homebrew's part for sure. Well, I mean, it had been deprecated a long time, and it's noisy when it's deprecated. Like some of, I think one of Thoughtbot's formulas actually had it in there, but obviously not one that's used very often. But. I don't know. I feel like I would be even more wary of breaking changes in Homebrew's place than I would in a library just because there's so much disconnect between the people who see the deprecations, the code that is deprecated. Right. There's so few ways to control it. But the formulas that ship with Homebrew were fixed, right? So it's only third-party formulas at which point. Oh, yeah. You think the users know, like, I'm tapping this keg. Is that what they call it? This is another yeah. one of those things where they've taken it's the tapping a keg. Okay, <laughs> another one yeah, of the things like VCR where they've taken smaller the... surface area. Right. So I don't know. Like even if I were originally sympathetic to the person who opened the issue, like the way that it was addressed made me less and less sympathetic to them. But I thought it was interesting, like the debate of like, is this a dependency or is this just an end user application? Which which is this or is it both? I don't know. But we'll link to that in the show notes. People can check it out and draw their own conclusions. I know one other thing that Rust does, because Rust is super about stability, but they do have a definition of what a minor breaking change is, and minor breaking changes are allowed, but um, they always do several versions with warnings before any actual code would stop compiling. And one of the things they did was they built a a tool that goes and tries to compile every crate on crates.io. And if they're ever going to do a minor breaking change, one of the things they do is they run this tool and they go find all the code that they can that's broken as a result of it. If that number is large, they just don't do the change to begin with. But if the number is small, they usually just go open a pull request to every repository that's broken by it. Yeah, and that's certainly something you could do, although a lot of these are probably private. Right. But it's certainly something you could do and point to and be like, we did this too. Like, we did the best we could here. And, like, I think the maintainer's point is, like, there's really just no reason for me to call this 2.0. Like... Right. I'm not going to no, do it. No, and they shouldn't. And, and again, it's user-facing software, so you're not specifying the version of Homebrew you depend upon. Semver would be meaningless to them. Semver, like, versioning is literally only a marketing tool for them. Homebrew XP. Yes. <laughs> no, like, what would, like, what would be the point? Like, the version it means nothing for developers for Homebrew. Right. That's weird to say that because their users are developers, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. I mean, I think, I think when they made the thing of like, this is now 1.0, it was kind of like a thing that was like, oh, cool, this thing I've been using forever is now 1.0. Right. I don't know if there were people out there who weren't using it because it was pre-1.0. Um, I doubt it. But, you know, if it made them feel good and it did kind of give me like, a, oh, look at this. This project's all grown up. Right. Yeah. Um, so it did accomplish that. It had marketing connotations, really. 
1.0 definitely has marketing connotations no matter what. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like, Diesel has production users. I feel like that number will get bigger once it's post 1.0 because there's definitely a large swath of people who won't use pre 1.0 software, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But I found out there's a bank who's using us for production. Which like, and it's fine, and I'm sure it's fine, because even though we're pre 1.0, I'm very confident it's ready for production, or I wouldn't have put it in the wild. But like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> that's you know. What what bank? <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there was somebody what who bank? came no. <laughs> into our gator the other day who was just like, "Do you know of any production users?" And my, and I just answered yes, because like, I'm not going to advertise all the people using us who I know of who are using us for production without their permission. Right. It was by, like they expected me to actually list all of the production users that I know of. That'd be a cool 1.0 kind of thing is to like ask people you know who are using it like, hey, can we put your company logo on this or like can we get a tes- yeah. can we get a testimonial that says like you've been using this in production and yada yada. That actually would be a good idea to do. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, did you see that NPM shipped their Rust code? No, I that didn't. Ashley was talking. Yeah, no. Ashley was talking about doing it on podcast. They shipped it. What does it do? Whatever the stuff internally in the registry that was slow that they were talking about. Oh, well, cool. Yeah. Congratulations to them. There was a hubbub because now NPM's listed on the Friends of Rust page, which is if you ship Rust in production, you can open a pull request to go onto that page. Oh, we have a Slack Markov generator that's uh, written in Rust. Do you think we can probably uh, play, <laughs> appear on something Blake wrote? Yeah. Cool. Uh, should we wrap up? It's five o'clock. Yeah, let's wrap up. So Sean's going to be in New Zealand, uh, and I will be here working, and Tom will be on vacation. Therefore, we won't have any more episodes after this uh, for the rest of the year, but we'll see you in 2017. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 93. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Bye. See ya. Happy New Year.